The Blockhash Podcast is also brought to you by Viva Digital. Viva Digital has a team of experts that can solve the technological problems of your computer. They can also offer the best advice to carry out those computer projects that you have planned. They are located in beautiful Medellin, Colombia in Monterey Mall. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at vivadigital.com.co and don't miss any promotion. All of the awesome audio and beats on the Blockhash podcast are brought to you by my good friend Tiger at It's Tiger Music. So go check out It's Tiger on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Music. What's up, guys? It is Wednesday, August 19th. This week on the podcast, I have Danielle DiMartino Booth as a guest. She is the author of Fed Up and the CEO for Quill Intelligence. We cover topics such as the pandemic, China, uh, the Federal Reserve, and even talk about Bitcoin as a speculative asset. So be sure to subscribe if you have not already and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about Bitcoin for Danielle DiMartino Booth. Enjoy. Thank you for taking time to come on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Before we get started, uh, do you want to share a little bit with the audience, uh, a little bit about your background? For those that don't know you, can be a little bit more familiar with who you are. Sure. No, I'd love to. Um, started out out of business school on Wall Street, working at a traditional investment bank, uh, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret, which is no longer with us, but it specialized, uh, its specialty, if you will, that set it apart was that it had a merchant bank. So there was a big private equity influence in my younger career. I worked a lot with high yield debt as well, when a time that there was still price discovery in the credit markets. Uh, after 9-11, I left the industry, signed a non-compete, left the industry and ended up uh, writing for the Dallas Morning News, volumes about the housing market and how I thought it was a very risky place to be and ended up getting called to serve the country at the Federal Reserve, which is a place I never thought I would be. I'm the last person you would ever describe as a bureaucrat per se, uh, but the person running the Dallas Fed at the time, Richard Fisher, was like I was, not a PhD in economics. He wasn't a person who was married to his models, and it ended up being a great nine-year career for me, uh, being able to see how it works inside the Federal Reserve, which is really scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came out and wrote a book about it, and now I run a research boutique uh, that, that does a lot of uh, work on the macroeconomic side. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. How, how was that experience at the Fed? Frustrating, but understandably so. Uh, they really are a bunch of academics. I mean, it's, there's the conspiracy mm-hmm. theorists, people, they, they crack me up. It's not, it's <laughs> not some place that's run by evil bankers mm-hmm. uh, at all. In fact, it's much more boring, which makes it much, uh, much more dangerous. And that is that uh, they are a bunch of academics who uh, don't have enough real world experience to be making something as important as monetary policy. And yet here we are. Gotcha. I did read your book, uh, Fed Up. It really helped me gain a better understanding of the Federal Reserve and how it has this influence over the economy. Um, and, and this is also one of my questions, but you know, given that influence and control that the Fed has over the economy, the U.S. economy, would you know, America be better off without the Fed or is it necessary? You know, I'm, I'm not an end the Fed person. I, I never have been. Uh, that being said, the entire last chapter of my book was devoted to massive and deep reforms that need to be uh, implemented at the Fed in order to make it a non-political 
completely independent uh, arm of the U.S. government, and I think that they're absolutely they're, they're more critical today than they've ever been because the Fed's uh, has overstepped its bounds, stepped outside of its mandates to an extent uh, that, that puts the great financial crisis and the initial era of quantitative easing in the dust. So, uh, but again, for, for matters of national security, if, if you see what China has been able to do to our 5G networks, to in terms of stealing our in in terms of stealing our intellectual property, uh, you you just don't want to leave the world's biggest financial system completely unguarded and vulnerable and open to complete attack by the Chinese. Gotcha. The pandemic, you know, has caused a lot of economic turmoil, obviously. Um, and the Fed has used a lot of different tools, everything from stimulus to keeping rates at zero or below and using swap lines. Is, is the Fed doing the right thing, um, propping up the economy in this way, or is there something they should be doing better? The Fed is... It's not better as much as less. The Fed is doing too much. Uh, if you're talking about swap lines, you certainly want to, as the world's biggest central banker, you don't want to have there to be some kind of cataclysmic systemic moment in the financial markets uh, that, that, that is global and, and ends up taking the world down. And so in, in that sense, the Fed is doing the right thing Mm-hmm. To, to, to be an, a kind of a shepherd of, of the global financial system. It is doing the wrong thing to be inside of our junk bond market, uh, inside of the corporate bond market, implicitly holding up the stock market, printing money to kingdom come. Uh, these are things that overstep its bounds and that destroy the ability of markets uh, to discover prices on their own. They, they push investors out of their natural place as price discoverers, and and really, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say they destroy capitalism in, in the process. So would it be better if they just stepped back a little bit and stopped getting overly involved? Yes, but that's better, that's better said than done. Anytime the Fed has even tried to take a baby step back as, as measured, and, and you, know, you could have measured it with an eyedropper, the mm-hmm. quantitative tightening process. And as glacially slowly as Janet Yellen normalized interest rates too slowly, uh, just the, the, the slightest bit of tightening because the market has become so addicted to overly easy, artificially low interest rate policy, this, the slightest bit of tightening is enough to send the, the markets into a tailspin, which uh, unfortunately the, the economy is tethered to as no other time in U.S. history. Right. And I do feel like the Fed is kind of caught in this weird situation where you know, they, they can't really raise rates um, with, without, you know, inducing this economic collapse that's kind of on the horizon with all the debt we have. At the same time, they're trying to get involved and prop up the economy. It almost seems like they're, it's not always their fault and they're kind of caught in the middle here. Yeah, yes, but I think that's also something of a red herring because Alan Greenspan did not have to start down this road when he did. In, uh, just to take but one example. But in 1996, when he made a speech in which he said that the stock market was uh, reflective of irrational exuberance, it was within his scope to make sure that margin requirements were increased at that time. And he didn't do anything. He just recognized the fact that there was a bubble that was forming and that it, it was irrationally exuberant. So when you don't get out in front of things like that, then you do indeed deserve the blame in the aftermath, even though he was of the philosophy that the Fed could only come in after the, after the fact and clean up the mess that it had created. I don't buy into that. How do you think Jerome Powell has done so far? 
I think Jerome Powell had a great first year in office. <laughs> and, uh, and, and after the credit markets uh, bared their teeth to him, uh, October the 31st, General Electric debt was downgraded. 14 days later, November the 14th, high yield issuance uh, shut down in America, completely froze for 41 record days. Uh, there were, there were, and this, this is the trap that you speak of. There, there were redemptions from exchange traded bond funds when the underlying collateral that backed them was trading by appointment only. Uh, bond spreads were gapping out. It was clearly a systemic event in the making and showed him how very dangerous uh, the credit bubble that had been blown up in the quantitative era easing with Bernanke and Yellen showed him how very dangerous and global and systemic it was. And so we, ha we had the Powell pivot after the bloodbath in, in the stock market in late 2018. And he hasn't looked back since. And he's actually done more damage than any of his predecessors in the post-COVID era by, uh, by pushing the Fed to go into markets that they did not necessarily have to go into, which has given the impression that he wants to make sure that Wall Street is bailed out to the explicit uh, detriment of Main Street. Should we be bailing out Wall Street? Hell no. No, we should not be bailing out Wall Street. That, that, that is not what the bankruptcy code in the United States of America is all about. The bankruptcy right. code is companies file for Chapter 11. They restructure, subordinated debt holders and equity holders get wiped out. Employees stay intact. You move along. Uh, that's what the bankruptcy code is all about. So the Fed is, is impending, impinging upon the ability of capitalism uh, to, to work. And in doing so, it has fostered an entire generation of zombie corporations that are going to be long-term productivity drag on the U.S. economy. And I, again, I put this right at the Fed's door. Right. I, I would agree with you there for sure. I also know that you're the CEO of Quill Intelligence as well. Uh, re regarding how you guys you know, analyze the market, do you guys focus on like a niche area in the market or is it more broad? Like, How do you guys uh, cover and go about your analysis? Um, yeah, we, we are an extremely broad macroeconomic uh, research house. For example, we just uh, published our daily feather today on the prospects for furloughed workers in the United Kingdom on the heels of one of the worst recessions that it's seen in post-war time. Uh, we, we write about every asset class. Uh, um, so we, we write from the perspective of macroeconomists and investors alike. And most importantly, unlike a sell side or a buy side firm with absolutely no agenda. So we're not trying to sell anything per se. So I, I think our, all of our subscribers uh, feel that they get good value out of, out of having truly objective research uh, in their inbox every day. Yeah, I need, I need more education. <laughs> I need to subscribe to that. What, what's the website or where can people go to look for it? Uh, it's called Quill Intelligence, Q-U-I-L-L, -L, Quill Intelligence, all one word. Okay, perfect, perfect. Since the pandemic lockdown around, around March, um, you know, a lot of traditional assets like gold and silver have performed pretty well. Um, and that even includes you know, speculative assets such as Bitcoin. And this seems to be, you know, one of the places that people are choosing to invest their money um, and subjective value is very important in understanding stores of value and where people, you know, choose to place their money. Um, in, in your opinion, if you have one, does this constitute any type of correlation with Bitcoin in terms of taking steps towards being a more legitimate store of value? I, I think that the challenge, I understand the drive towards Bitcoin. 
um, I was actually on the receiving end on, on Twitter because I was a verified user of the, of the Bitcoin scam mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks back. I, I think that the challenge to Bitcoin going forward is that, uh, that big sovereign nations are going to be rolling out with their own cryptocurrencies. So, and again, you could say, well, that's one fiat for another fiat. But I think that, that because you'll have sovereign cryptos out there, that that will push back the, uh, the appeal for Bitcoin and increase that of, um, of gold once again. I, I look at Bitcoin as being younger investors' gold, which is a reflection of, of, of the amount of distrust that, that people normally have of central bankers trying to destroy the buying power of, of their currencies. Right. Do you, do you think that that could be a threat to gold if it is a generational thing? Like if it's younger people, you know, that are buying Bitcoin, I mean, which it is. And, you know, people that are a little bit older, you know, over 35 generally that are, you know, more focused on investing in things like gold or precious metals. Um, do you think that that, you know, over time, you know, threatens that, you know, status quo of what, you know, a store value might be? I think that I don't think gold will ever be displaced per se. Mm -hmm. um, and my, my reservation with, with, with Bitcoin coming up and displacing gold theoretically would be that in terms of security, in terms of people's view of it as a true store of value, um, because I, I, I don't think anybody disagrees that it's a, a perfectly fine motive of, 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 uh, of making a transaction. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is, can, there is and will continue to be until security could truly be illustrated, if you will, to the broad public, that security will always keep in question its ability to be a store of value. Right. I don't think gold's going away anytime soon either. And I know it's hotly debated. And then, you know, regarding the pandemic, you know, just the mindset of people, do you think people are, you know, buying assets out of fear or panic buying or do you think it's something that they're buying because they see that there's you know long-term value as a hedge against the economy um, or i guess better put do you think that people are investing the way they are now to hedge against the economy or just because of the pandemic and they're in a state of panic i think it's a combination of things you've seen uh you know after years of it being kind of in obscurity and kind of the, the enclave of gold bugs, you know, who've got tinfoil and, and antenna sticking out of their heads um, for a decade now. I, I think now that it, it has gained such appeal as an asset class uh, that, you've, that you've got a new generation of investors who are looking to it. Um, and then the Robin Hood movement, if you will, younger investors crowding into anything, and recently it was of course silver. I think that that has also had something of, of an effect. Uh, but I, I like to think of my gold holdings as being a core part of my portfolio and try not to pay attention to the ebbs and flows uh, of it, given that we're really just now sitting at a 10-year high or nine-year high, and you kind of say to yourself, okay, so big deal, considering what's happened in, in other asset classes. And then I just have actually one more question just kind of off the top of my head since we were talking about China just a little bit ago. Um, you know, obviously, we've been kind of in this trade war for a while between the U.S. and China, um, and things have definitely been escalating for a while. How, how do you think this is all going to play out? Do you think there's going to be some kind of trade deal, or do you think it's just going to get more, um, more combative? 
Um, I really do think that that's going to be a matter that will be decided with the election and with, with how the political climate here in the United States evolves. That being said, uh, uh, you know, if, if there's one if there's one credit that I will give to President Trump, it is that I don't think the average American is ever going to be trusting of China again that they might have been five years ago. And I think that that is not necessarily a bad thing uh, because we, we do need to focus more given what's happened with COVID, given the fact that we had, we didn't have access to pharmaceuticals that we needed as a country, given the fact that we didn't have access to personal protective equipment that we needed as a country and that we came to know after the fact that we were so reliant on, on China, I think that these are not necessarily bad wake-up calls. And at the same time, you could say that, that President Trump's foreign policy has alienated quite a few of our allies, uh, but by, this, by, by the same token, COVID sure has brought us back together in terms of, of seeing uh, China as being at the very least a frenemy. Right. I, I think China in some ways really put a bad taste in the world's mouth with the way they handled the pandemic. And there's still so many questions. And I, I imagine by the time it's all over, whenever that is, that China's going to have a lot to deal with on the world stage. I think they really put themselves in a bind there. They have. And um, they're not in a position of strength that is that is perceived by quite a few people. There's a huge debate centering around, you know, well, China's at a three-decade low growth rate. Are they going to be able to be the engine of growth for the rest of the world that they were before? I would say that the answer to that is no. They won't be a marginal source of economic growth. By the same token, they're still the second largest economy in the world. They still have a massive consumer sector that is going to be growing. So just as a domestic entity, I think that China will be able to stand stand just fine. And again, they've got a banking system that they can run at gunpoint. So uh, in, in terms of runaway bank runs, insolvencies, debt markets blowing up, the types of things that you would, you would expect to see in a normal financial system, you're not really going to see that kind of drama out of China, which, you know, my opinion, my views fly in the face of a lot of people who think that China's, you know, at the precipice of blowing up. I don't think that that's going to be the case, but I do think that China is going to be in a weaker position going forward to help out the rest of the world economy. That has implications for big exporting countries that are in South Africa, South America, what have you. I know there are a lot of factors, but do you think China's still on track to outpace the U.S. economy and eventually, you know, take that number one spot? I think that the answer to that question has more to do with how the United States uh, behaves and approaches its own economy in a post-COVID world. So are, are we going to be, um, are we going to continue a push towards vocational training in the United States? Uh, are, are there going to be reforms to make sure that we don't slide into socialism and find innovative ways to keep our workers working? Work training programs, for example. I think the question is answered here in the United States as opposed to there in China, and whether or not we can adopt a more Chinese way of viewing economic growth in a long-term sense so that we can win the, the marathon as opposed to the race and, and, and approach our economy differently. Or if we're just going to say, you know what, we've got the reserve currency status in the world, we can do whatever we want. That attitude is not going to get us far and it will end up uh, pushing China, I think, to the forefront. Do you think the U.S. dollar is you know, in jeopardy of losing that reserve currency status? Because it seems like there's a lot of countries out there that really don't favor using the dollar anymore. And it seems like there's a lot of pressure on it. Yeah, that's, that's a convenient narrative. And there has been uh, a lot less in the way of, 
of, of the, the desire to mm -hmm. transact in dollars, but what we've also seen over the last decade in a period of quantitative easing and historically 5,000 year low rates in interest rates is that emerging economies have taken up into borrowing in dollars. And so the dollar's position in, in some sense has become even more globally dominant than it was before, even though there is indeed a global desire for there to be uh, less in the way of transactions. But if you look and see what's happened in, for example, yuan transactions, they've gone even, they, they, they fall into an even greater extent than that of the United States. And they are the, the second largest economy in the world. And therefore the one you would presume would displace the dollar. That's not happening anytime soon. I think Japan's its own situation. I don't think the, the yen will ever rise. And you've got the euro with a banking system that was never cleaned up in the first place. Yeah, it is. So it could happen. It could happen, but not not in the way that a lot of people on my Twitter feed think it's <laughs> going to happen. Like tomorrow at five o'clock p.m. No, no, not happening. Is, is Twitter the best place for people to keep up with your opinions? Absolutely. Um, it is. I, I mean, I'm I'm active on many different uh, different platforms, but Twitter is definitely where I'm I'm most interactive. Yeah, where can people follow you if they want to keep up with your uh, your opinions and what you have to say about things? Twitter and what else do you use? Twitter is where I am kind of minute to minute mm -hmm. uh, active, but but the Daily Feather, which we publish every day, is where you keep up with what my deeper views are, um, and and that that would be found at quillintelligence.com. And we, you know we've got we've got kind of a cult following on the street again because we produce research that is that is just that it's just pure and adulterated objective unbiased research awesome yeah I'll, I'll make sure that's in the description people can find it um great yeah thank you for taking the time really appreciate it I think a lot of people will really enjoy this episode absolutely anytime take care be safe you too stay safe in quarantine bye